0: podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network.
1: Well, that's the end of the 90 minutes. It will be extra time. We hope you'll stay with us. Welcome to this edition of Ness and Dormer Extra Time. I'm at Gary Naylor nine nine nine, and I'm delighted this afternoon to welcome along Tom Whitworth. Hello, Tom.
0: Hi, Gary. How are you doing?
1: I'm doing okay, and how are things up in Sheffield? I think you are.
0: Yeah, good. Thank you. Really warm today, so it's looking good.
1: Super, super. Well, um, you've. You've done what the fashion theorists say, because way back in the day, I used to teach a little bit of this kind of stuff, and they, they postulate that for a fashion to come back, it has to cycle through a whole generation. So you put your BDI on this and thought, I'll tell you what we need now. What we need now is a retrospective of 90s football. Is that how it came about?
0: That's right yeah so I was I was born in the 80s and I grew up through the 90s and so I guess you could say that it took me a while to sort of get to the age where I would be writing a book. I've written one about Sheffield Wednesday before mm-hmm. but it felt like the, the next project that I wanted to do and, and as you said it sort of felt like it, it, it was uh, long enough ago in the past to be sort of looked at again and also there's a few things kind of Perhaps culturally, but also certainly in football, that seem to be coming back round or referred back to quite a lot by people, I guess, of our generation.
1: Yes, that's uh, that's certainly uh, certainly so. When we started Ness and Dormer four or five years ago, I think there was one sort of eighties and nineties football podcast around and and now you know if you walk out in the street you'll come across somebody uh, uh making a, a an old football podcast so there's there's plenty of of those about um but not so much in the way of books so you've got a, a a kind of interesting niche in the market and you've certainly picked perhaps the most famous phrase of all 90s football as a title how long did it take you to decide on it
0: it's um, a good question. I can't. I can't quite remember. So when the seagulls follow the trawler from Cantonar, and I think it was probably just through through the process of writing it. But I I do remember that it wasn't like I had a list of options for titles. When when I thought of that, I thought that's definitely going to be it. And yep. and that might have been as early as pitching the book actually. So a long a long while ago.
1: Yeah, I, I, I'm sure it is. I remember, I remember around the time of the uh, of that uh, quote, which I'll I'll give you the opportunity to put into your own words in terms of context in a minute. But I, uh, I spoke to a, a French friend of mine, and I said, "It seems unbelievable because England, Britain was still a, a largely parochial country. Many would say it's it's the case today." Um, but we'll come to some of the uh, more international changes uh, as we go through our chat. But it was still a, a, a parochial country, and I, I said to her, I said, the most famous person in the country is actually French, and it was uh, due to the uh, seismic events, not far from where I'm sitting now, at Selhurst Park. So um, just give a little bit of background on the uh, on the quote.
0: Yeah, so uh, in summary, Eric are playing for, for Manchester United, uh, he'd been there for with the club for a few years and and helped them massively kind of um get to the stage of being Premier League champions and then the following year in 94 as well winning the double so um that that season uh when he when United were uh, down at Selhurst Park playing Crystal Palace obviously uh, not obviously but as as many people can remember uh, he got a bit of a stick from from someone in the crowd, not a very nice guy, and he uh, reacted by sort of uh, doing a kung fu kick towards him and causing a bit of a bit of a, a bit of chaos in in the stands there. And so he, he was banned from the from the game by the FA for a number of months, and there was also he, he needed to go to court as well. And after that, uh, he was in a press conference, and that's where his line. When the seagulls follow the trawler uh, was said by him, which confused a lot of people, and there was a lot of interpretations of it. But that's that's the famous line from uh, Cantonal which I guess sort of sums up his kind of uh, maverick uh, approach to things at the time.
1: Yeah, so I remember um, the press conference, and these things become sort of mythologised. So you're never sure if you're remembering a memory or you're remembering. Re- reading about somebody else's memory of the of the event but i think he kind of delivers that quote carefully scripted nomic would wouldn't even begin to be the right adjective for something as incomprehensible and then he kind of sat back in his chair and looked down that gallic nose of his at the journalists in front of him um at, uh, as if to say, "Well, that's told you," <laughs> and, and everybody sort of looked at each other. But it was it was a it was a glorious moment, and I think um, I think Twitter could do a lot worse than uh, than create a, a, a kind of um, cantonar kick uh, for the players of today, so that when they get this appalling abuse, they can do the. Um, they can do an, uh, an electronic version of uh, Cantonar leaping into the crowd. We, we don't condone violence here at Ness and Dorma, but it was both terribly, terribly funny and also very much deserved by the uh, by the guy who provoked him so uh that's the that's the title of the book and then um you're looking at a decade of of football um you're not going to be short of material how did you go about organizing that into uh something that would fit between the hard covers or indeed onto a kindle
0: yeah uh, so it was quite difficult to sort of decide what i was going to include because i guess a book like this you could write as a series of anecdotes through the decade, you know, Jimmy Glass scoring for Carlisle and so on, which um, I think uh, a lot of people are familiar with, lots and lots of stories from, from the 90s. But the way I wanted to approach it was, and the theme that emerged was, it was, in my opinion, a decade of change for British football. Uh, lots of things changing in terms of the Premier League and the money, uh, players uh, arriving from overseas and improving the quality of the game, uh, all-seater stadiums. Uh, more people coming to to the games and so on and getting into football, as it were, it moving into the mainstream of British culture. So sort of under that theme, I thought I wanted to tell that story. It's not quite chronological, although there is a bit of a chronological thread going from the early 90s all the way to the end. It ends with Manchester United completing the treble in 99. But through that, I just wanted to pick out the stories and the clubs that I thought were personally interesting. So... I used as kind of um, the staging post through the decade the tournaments of World Cup 94 in America, Euro 96 and then World Cup in France 98 and then around that I talked about Manchester United, Liverpool, Manchester United's rising and I guess Liverpool's kind of uh, changed from the dominant club of the 80s to, to less so in the 90s and then Arsene Wenger arriving at Arsenal and then I talk about the new stadiums through Huddersfield Town and talking about their new stadium which still looks great today I think but was one of the early um, all-seater stadiums newly built in the decade. So I kind of picked out a number of main chapters and then I went in and I wanted to start talking to owners, um, so Newcastle's in there as well, so Sir John Hall's in there, players like Les Ferdinand, um, Dave Watson at Everton and then supporters as well who kind of lived that journey all the way through it, managers as well, Roy Evans at Liverpool. So I just wanted to get lots and lots of people's opinions about what happened to them at the time. But to answer your question, hopefully, focusing on key stories that might not appeal to every fan of every club, but hopefully sort of demonstrate the story of the 90s. And it's my stories of the 90s, as it were. So I think you know, Tottenham fans might have picked a chapter on Tottenham, obviously, but I had to sort of uh, decide what not to include as well
1: how how did you go about that then um what 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 didn't make the cut and why so to speak before we get to the uh, the the material that, that did make it between the covers
0: yeah okay so uh, one thing that did make it was i wanted to do a big chapter on liverpool so i wanted to talk about the docker strike and robbie fowler so growing up, I can remember dean robbie fowler goals and thinking it was brilliant for instance so it was a case of what did i want to write about and one of the themes I wanted to talk about was the Ajax team winning the Champions League in um, in ninety five and then losing the final in ninety six. That great Ajax team. So I was going to write a chapter on them. I'm going to write a chapter on them. But then, in terms of it being more about British football and the Premier League era, it didn't quite make it as a full chapter. But ended up in Euro ninety six talking about Holland team. So the link there. So there was quite a few um, decisions that I had to make. I I wanted to I didn't just want to talk about every team that won the Premier League for instance although the dominant clubs are in there I wanted to talk about people like Everton and Manchester City as well who'd not kind of um, had much of a successful nineteen nineties so it was really going back to base you know m- my own knowledge of the nineties and remembering the teams and the players that I I but then. Really, just going back and doing quite a lot of reading and, and seeing what were the interesting stories that I might have forgotten about or not picked up and how I could weave those in and out and uh, what would make the cut or not.
1: So, when one thinks of football in the 90s, it's a bit of a reductivist statement, but it, it tends to start with Italia 90 and the immediate aftermath of Italia 90. And, you know, I'll. I'll front up and and say that it's linked to technological and political uh matters as well and i'll front up and say that uh after italia 90 i went out and got myself a square now you're probably too young to remember a square would you know what i was talking about if i said a square no ah well (laughs) you see a square was the um satellite dish that was uh offered by British Satellite Broadcasting, BSB, before they were taken over two or three years later by Sky. And the delight of the square Squarial, apart from it being better technology and a lot less ugly than a big white frying pan on the side of your house, was that um, it got live uh, football from Serie A, from Italian football. Now, that was around the time when, first of all, you know we, we were besotted by all things Italian um secondly Serie A had the, the pick of the world's players it was like a kind of like the IPL is now for cricket it it had the superstars all all there and, and thirdly it was I think part of a, a a kind of general flow certainly in London towards being much less parochial much more outward looking There's, there seemed to be new Italian restaurants opening every every other day and uh, I've got the the body shape now to show that I sampled quite a few of them, and um, and so if we go to Italia ninety, where does that sit in your story?
0: So it sits very very early on, and I, the the way I talk about it is the sort of um, football emerging out of the darkness, if you like, of of the eighties. Some of the things that were were happening through that decade, and obviously there's the the common story that. Because of the success of the England team, football became suddenly a lot more popular with a lot more people, or, or people got back into it, gas going and so on. Because uh, England get into the semi-final, but I think some of the stuff that you, when you watch back at that tournament, some of the, um, the sort of the spectacle of uh, the San Siro, I think it was the opening ceremony, where it, it did look like this was the centre of the world for, for football, and I, I know you would expect that from a World Cup. But it did seem to sort of um be a lot more colourful perhaps than, than it had been in, in recent years, football that is. And then and as you're saying, the leagues the league at the time was the best in the world and continued to be so, probably through most of, if not all, of the nineties, that the shift was probably taking place towards the Premier League in, in some some ways. But yeah, i I talked about it's the emergence really, and then further on in the book there's a lot about some of the players who were leaving Serie A to sign for Premier League clubs, but also the excellence that was still there. Juventus in the Champions League and so on. So there was a there was a lot of examples where I was talking about it and and using uh, whilst I'd not quite used the the examples of the the satellite coverage of Serie A. Obviously, not long after that, it was onto Channel Four, and I guess. Loads more people got into it then James Richardson sat outside having a coffee and so on yeah uh,
1: yeah that was that was highlights. what we got with the squaal was the raw material Sunday afternoons watching live italian football it was It was terribly glamorous i can I can promise you um, now I've had some other interviews with you where you take the view. And I'm going to put a a gloss on it. I'm not going to disagree with it. You take the view that Italia 90 was not the greatest tournament in terms of a spectacle.
0: I think I think probably, I mean, I must say it's not one that I can remember watching growing up because I was a bit young. So uh, probably neither was World Cup 94. World Cup 98 was probably the one for me. And I know there's people a bit more loyal to the ones that they can remember specifically. But I think if you look at Whilst there was the spectacle of Italia 90 and England made it to the semi-final, they weren't. it wasn't exactly the best performances from England as they made their way through there, some kind of um, close moments. And also, I think if I'm right in saying that the average goals through the tournament was the lowest ever, I think, or, or quite low than in, in recent years. So it wasn't, that's probably what I mean by it probably wasn't in terms of footballing-wise, the best that people had seen up to that point.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's that's perfectly fair. the The background is that that there was a there was a feeling abroad in the country, if that makes sense. And some of it, as I say, was related to technology. Some of it was was social. It was, in memory, it was a warm summer. Every day seemed that World Cup. 90 was on was was hot and sunny. Admittedly, I was in Italy for some of it, although I wasn't at the matches, so um that that may colour some of my uh, memories. But the, the other part of, of of that summer is that it was I think just about the first World Cup where there were televisions in pubs. Now you may say, you know, surely there were televisions in pubs in the eighties, but there really weren't, and there wasn't a a culture of of going to the pub to watch the television, uh, to see matches on the big screens there, or relatively big screens, because, of course, the screens were bigger than we had at home as well. And um, it was a tournament, not so much of of great matches, but it did have great moments. And these moments, uh, especially when you were in this relatively new collective, which was both male and female, something else that was different, in pubs um, became real events. So uh, you know, Skilachi scoring and that expressive face that he has running towards the camera. Um, these became big moments. Um, and I, I, I can recall it was possibly the, the semi-final. I was in a pub in um, in uh, Battersea uh, watching it, and it was a crowded pub, and at half time. Um, From the kitchen came all these kind of sandwiches, sausage rolls, all kinds of stuff on these big trays. And people were... conveying them hand over hand uh, as if they, you know, the old days of, of handing yeah. a kid up to the front to the cop going over everybody's heads as the uh, kid got to the front. These sandwiches got to the back of the pub and the middle of the pub, the end of the pub. And I went over to the uh, to the landlord and I said, are these are all, all free. He said, look, we're making so much money out of this World Cup, I'm only too pleased <laughs> to give you the sandwiches. <laughs> and that showed what a what a difference it was. I had conversations with all kinds of of, of different people who hitherto hadn't been interested in football. And they were asking me about this, asking me who this Gary Lineker was and this Gazza, is he really for real, and, and all this kind of thing. So it did grip the nation, but it gripped the nation as an event as much as a, a football tournament, um, along with a glorious summer and stuff like that. But it certainly it certainly provides a useful kind of beginning for some of the, the themes that developed throughout the 90s that you've already alluded to um, now uh you've mentioned the McAlpine Stadium at, at Huddersfield and I think they made a a big difference in your in your interviews um did you come across this this feeling that stadiums that had been very much kind of male preserves with rudimentary uh, toilet facilities for women if any um then became much more attuned to to a broader base of of uh customer than the the kind of forty five year old male happy to stand there against the wall at half time?
0: I think so. I think um when I was there's an interview with David Dean who was uh at Arsenal uh, through the nineties for for the for the Arsenal chapter, but one thing he did talk about was improving the facilities at Highbury because it was they weren't the stadiums weren't that inviting to to families perhaps because of some of the facilities and uh, not just this all seater but, you know, some of the, the, um, where you could get food and so on. So there was a definitely, um, a consciousness that something needed to change and things needed to improve. It, it wasn't acceptable, the, the standards that they got. And then talking to Dale Jennings, who was one of the architects who worked on Huddersfield and was involved in the new stadium, um, new Tottenham stadium as well. So, his sort of journey uh, through through that industry. But at Huddersfield, it was a case of Leeds Road, their old ground was fondly thought of by Huddersfield fans. And I interview a few of them in the book as well. But they realised that the club, they realised they just needed to rebuild and start again and make something new and shiny and and much safer and much more commercial. And that's what they delivered. And Huddersfield fans loved it, Was was the response I got from it.
1: Yeah, well, if they'd uh, like me been at the away end at uh, Oakwell Barnsley, which I'm sure is pretty typical of the uh, kind of ground they'd uh, they'd love almost anything uh, beyond that. But uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it does it does mark a change. I mean, David Dean was quite a visionary figure. I've spoken on earlier episodes of Ness and Dormer of uh, exchanges I had with him around the time, and he was very very keen to have a a fans perspective of Highbury um, which was already the best stadium um, to visit but um, he was he was uh, very keen on that so you have this kind of change with stadiums leading to and promoted partly by a change in in fans and the money how did you handle the money between 1990 and 2000
0: so that was a big part of the story in my opinion and it goes through all the book, so I make a lot of references throughout to the increasing Sky um, television contract for the Premier League, how the first one how the second one doubled from the first one and so on. and then just talking about a lot of the transfers that were taking place, uh record transfers and so on, so Shearer early it's Shearer from Southampton to Blackburn earlier in in the decade and then later on being the the biggest transfer again. To Newcastle for 15 million but just using really as many examples as I could find you know Middlesbrough spending 7 million on Ravenelli from nowhere as it seemed um, and then the wages increasing as well massively and I talk a lot about average wages going into the 90s and at the end of it and through the middle and so on so I kind of just kept referencing it and just sort of showed the gradual increase in all of them and to simplify I know that Uh, um, there was more income generated by clubs from the matchday experience and clubs like Manchester United were doing so well on the merchandising and so on. But I think the main kind of link was the increase in broadcast deals that very, very quickly, if not immediately, filtered into higher transfer fees and certainly player wages as well. So that's how I kind of dealt with it, just um, putting the examples in throughout.
1: Yeah, I remember reading... Uh, I think it was when Gary Lineker went signed for Tottenham from Barcelona, and it shows, you know, how naive we were as football fans. Uh, I remember reading somewhere that that I read that he was on a hundred thousand pound a year, and I, I looked at it and I thought, well, you know, that's that's pretty good. Um, and then I looked at it and the num- there, was, there were too few notes. Oh, I've misread that and i said, it can't be on 10,000 pound a year that's ridiculous and then i realized it was 10,000 pound a week and um, that kind of that kind of money even 5 years previous was was unthinkable for uh, for footballers and yet uh, quite early in the 90s that was coming through before the the uh, money started to go really crazy I'd say towards the end of the 90s did you speak to any of the players um you've mentioned les ferdinand did you get into any discussion with them as to what it was like to kind of win the lottery every week which is what it must have felt like
0: it's a good question i suppose i didn't really get get into that too much um but some of the anecdotes and stories that they we did hear about were quite interesting i thought which so for instance Nikki weaver um, getting promoted with Manchester City in 1999 but still living in digs so yeah. living quite a modest life but probably on the way to earning more money than it would have been at that point I think Les Ferdinand acknowledged that it was a, a move up to a, a bigger club and things that were happening at, at Newcastle and for Dave Watson for instance uh, the Everton captain he tells us this is not really about wages but he tells a story about after they won the FA Cup in 95, on the way back on the coach, they stopped off at, at, at a McDonald's for for some food, um, which I thought was quite sort of yeah. a, a good 90s story. So my point being, I think, that this there was still quite a lot of um, modesty among the players, even through that time, as those wages were going up. And it was probably the examples of people like um, Ruud Hullet earning lots of um, large wages and uh, some of the transfers like Shearer and so on that really stood out like like the Lineker example you gave before but I think there was a general acknowledgement from players that that, um, that the rewards were getting higher as uh, as the decade went on.
1: Yeah, to to what now seem fairly modest sums compared to what they earn today but still were stratospheric uh, to someone who was, say, 26 in 1996. If they'd been uh 16 in 1986 you know signing on as yts kids they they the the riches were unimaginable um there's probably there's probably a few stories to tell there not all of which would be suitable for broadcast nor indeed for (laughs) for a book of your guide. um you've mentioned some of the, the foreign players there because that that was also a big a big change in the in the nineties. You know, a, a foreign player in the uh, in the eighties was Kenny Dalglish and Ronnie Whelan playing for Liverpool, and maybe Fat Mulby, uh, Jan Mulby, whom we we loved to uh, to give a few shouts at, at Goodison, but whom we we loved as much as any Liverpool player. I promise you. Um, but they were few and far between. They tended to be journeymen uh, Scandinavians. There was a few at Sheffield Wednesday from memory. Uh, but suddenly the superstars, the Panini stickers, started turning up at the grounds, didn't they, in, in, in England? So um, how does the book address the, the Hullets, the Zolas, the Klinsmans of the uh, decade?
0: So I think that um, there's, I, I sort of build it up by talking about World Cup 94 and sort of saying that these were the superstars of the world game and most of them, a lot of them played for the Italian team but a lot of them played in Serie A as well. So people's getting the awareness of them. And as you were saying, um, the Panini stickers, seeing them on the TV, and then sort of seeing them in the Champions League as well as players who were in other leagues, not, not going to be playing in the Premier League. But then as you get through to sort of Euro 96 and, and some of those around that time and some of the examples of players that were brought in, I I talk about remembering having seen Ravinelli play in the Champions League a few weeks before or a couple of months before for Juventus and then signing for Middlesbrough for so much money, building onto the team that they, they got there with Giannino, Um and then Chelsea with with Hullet, as you say, but Vialli as well. For me personally, it was usually the strikers who you just thought there was no way that they were going to sign for the for Premier League clubs. But then all of a sudden it seemed they did and they were here. And they were just changing it and making it so much more exciting. And I think that when you say Zola, Zola stood out, Burkamp earlier than that Cantonar, but I guess it was it seemed to be these creative forwards who were the most kind of exciting. So it was a very, to me seemed like a very exciting time.
1: Yeah, and they, they came, of course, with with a different set of kind of social attitudes. Social attitudes that were not just kind of European in context, but the likes of Vialli, um, coming from a very wealthy background, I think he'd been to kind of private school and this kind of thing, they were very, not always, but they were often of a, a, a kind of different social class to, to footballers who in the UK still tended, without over-stereotyping this, still tended to come from uh, communities that found their roots in coal mining or shipbuilding or or... Uh, sons and daughters of dockers and stuff like this so um any any talk of of kind of you know david Chinola rocking up at, at uh, newcastle ordering a, a glass of red wine with his uh pasta uh for a pre-match or post-match meal rather than the uh burger and chips and uh, a few pints of newky brown
0: yeah there's there's a lot of examples of that i think um in the liverpool chapter uh, there's a few examples of you know sort of the the boozing that some of the players did through through that decade, and then the contrast, I guess, like you said, with Ginola. There's a, there's a few examples from Bergkamp where he can remember some of the things that the Arsenal players were eating, you know, sort of uh, beans on toast or whatever, coming out burping onto the pitch. <laughs> I think is one of the quotes I've got, which I thought was quite quite amusing because I think that. I I my impression is is not quite that the players who were arriving in the Premier League sort of looked down on any of the Premier League players already at what they were doing it would just seemed very different to them so like you said you know coming from Italy or wherever the Italian league having one glass of wine with a meal to relax uh eating pasta for energy the the influence of Wenger and so on I think it was just it seemed like a clash of two quite different cultures and worlds at the time and I think the how they kind of developed thereafter is the interesting story for me. For example, clubs like Arsenal realising that if you stop drinking to quite the extent that what might have happened before, you're going to get a bit of an advantage on your opponents. And and that's uh, if you start winning football matches, I guess that's quite um, quite a positive thing for them. So.
1: Yes, it was uh, less alcohol, more creatine. I think at uh, at Arsenal, that was a that was a, a big shift. But uh, you, you're absolutely right; these these things are, are, are social uh, as much as as sporting uh, differences, and those who could sort of meld these uh, these disparate groups together into into teams became the the giants of the uh, game. Um, so. Uh, how did you? How did you deal? You've mentioned Wenger a few times. Uh, how did you deal with the colossal figure of uh, Alex Ferguson at uh, Manchester United?
0: So there's two Manchester United chapters: the sort of the start of the nineties and, and then the end of the nineties. So pre and post Cantona, actually. Uh, so Ferguson's in there all the way through, and I talk about his background, um, joining from Aberdeen and the success that he'd had up there. Recapping what is quite a familiar story of course and you know his early success and you know challenges I would say before success he built that first team and then got the um, final piece in the jigsaw for, of Cantona so i think just his influence is that he he was so um forward thinking he rebuilt the team um after Cantona with the the um class of 92 as it were to to take on the trying to win the champions league I think some of the things that were quite interesting to me and a few people have written about this is how he evolved United tactically through the 90s to kind of deal with how to play in Europe and and to eventually to be able to overcome these his um, opponents in Europe like the Italian side Juventus and Inter Milan and so on. So I feel I feel like he was a main character but it was it was almost like he was just always there through the story as as of course he was throughout the 90s.
1: Yeah, um very much so. I mean, he he. At the time in the nineties, you could you could see something was happening, but in retrospect, he, he kind of looms even larger as a as a figure. It's a, it's an extraordinary uh, position that that seems, as I say, larger in the rearview mirror than it did at the time. Well, um, we don't want to give away too much of of the book, but I, I just want to to close with perhaps a. a, a question and i'll say no spoilers on this point but can you can you give perhaps a couple of of elements when you're looking uh when you were researching the book and putting it together where you thought well that's a surprise
0: um that's a good question uh I'm sorry, but nothing, nothing really springs to mind. <laughs> That's a terrible answer, and I should know because I've written the book. But um, no, I don't. I don't really remember being surprised too much by the things that I sort of read about or or were told by by people. It wasn't really that uh, you know too many revelations. I would say, but I just enjoyed hearing about how that how the nineties emerged and how people. How people had different impressions as they sort of live through it as well.
1: Well, let let let's, let's give you a, I want to give you a chance for a fan <laughs> to, to 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 finish off. Um let's let's try a, a less interesting question, I think, in some ways, but I'll give you a chance to to, to put a bit of sales behind. Uh, go on, give us the title again. I don't want to misquote because it's a very easy one to
0: misquote. So it's called When the Seagulls Follow the Trawler. Football in the 90s by Tom Whitworth.
1: So why, what would you say is the number one reason why someone should buy that book?
0: I would say if you lived through the 90s and enjoyed football, then it's a great recap and to relive stories that you might already know but been pieced together in a hopefully in an interesting way. But similarly, if you don't know much about it, there's not too many books around that summarise the whole decade, I would say. And so I think it's a great opportunity to get into it and as certainly as an introduction.
1: Well, I, I'm certainly looking forward to getting hold of a copy and uh, thumbing through myself. It remains only for me to thank you very much, Tom. Uh, we'll put a link to the book in the various uh, channels that we, uh, that we uh, promote Ness and Dorma. And um very much looking forward to, to your next one. Any plans? Football in the 2000s?
0: Um Maybe. I'm not sure if that was too interesting, but maybe that's just my, my personal view. So uh, I think I'm just having a rest for a little while now, but I'll, uh, hope maybe I'll think of something down the line.
1: Recharge your biro. Recharge your biro. That sounds a, <laughs> a, a good idea to me. Well, thank you very much, Tom. Uh, good luck with the book, and um, hopefully we'll speak again soon.
0: Thanks very much, Gary. Sports Social Podcast Network.